Welcome to Redemption Parker. Uh, why don't you go ahead and work your way, if you have a Bible, and hope you do, uh, or on your phone, to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we're continuing in our series through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, this is God's kindness to us that he would uh, condescend to reveal himself through his word, by his spirit, and in his church this morning. So we would ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. I'll read verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is, is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit, and we want to just simply align our wills, our desires with your will, your desire, Holy Spirit, and you desire to make much of Jesus. You desire to uh, show us his glory, his grace, his mercy, his grandeur, his His kingship. Uh, In so many ways, Lord, we uh, have gone astray this week, away from those desires. And so, Holy Spirit, would you align our hearts and our minds, our wills, with that which is pleasing in your sight? Uh, be with us now as we continue to dig deeper. Uh, be glorified in this as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I was reading a book this week. I'm almost done, so maybe... I don't necessarily recommend it, because in the last 10 pages it could go really south. But anyone read the book, uh, The Midnight Library? Nobody? New York Times bestseller? Anyone read anything this week? Okay. Uh, no, uh, Midnight Library, I, I, I had saw it advertised and I was reading it. It, it, it grabbed my attention. I kind of like these kind of philosophical novels that are kind of whimsical. Uh, the, the story is that uh, a woman by the name of Nora Seed, she dies, and when she dies, she finds herself in this library at midnight, and in this library, there are, there's an infinite number of books, and she finds out from the librarian there that uh, each book actually represents kind of a, a multiverse, a different, a different story of her life, where, where she made different choices along the way, and so uh, she, uh, in the course of the book, gets to enter into these stories, and, 
and live those lives for sometimes a few minutes, sometimes days, sometimes uh, a few weeks. And, and so she gets to kind of redo her life. So whatever regrets that she had, uh, she, she'd say, well, what if I did a life where I didn't do that? And so uh, she doesn't break up with her high school boyfriend and marries him. And she finds out very quickly she didn't like that life. And so she jumps out of that book. And then uh, she just kind of goes through these lives where uh, she fulfills her father's desires for her in one life. And she continues swimming and she eventually becomes an Olympic gold medalist. And uh, another one, she becomes a, a lead singer of the most famous rock band. And she has 10 million Insta- Instagram followers. And she's got a life of fame and all that involved with that. And she didn't really like that. And another life, she's just a, she's a dog walker. And she, she walks dogs. And uh, she's got this other boyfriend that she had met for a little bit in her previous life. And another one, she went to Australia with her best friend. And uh, her friend gets in a car accident and dies. And so she's just a, a beach bum by herself in Australia. But she just lives this life after life after life. And, and what the author, Matt Haig, who's a, a British author, what he's, what he's exploring is this question. What, what makes a life worth living? What, what makes a meaningful life? What, what are the, the choices involved where, where you have a fulfilling life? And, and it's, a, it's a question that we all feel like, that that moment that you're laying in bed and you're thinking uh, about the next day and, and, and maybe you're just thinking about your life, you're thinking, man, what? Maybe you're looking back. What, what should I have done different? Or maybe you're looking forward. Like, what, what should I do different? What, what do you think about when you think about that? And I think because we are image bearers of God and, and by virtue of the fact that you chose to get up on a snowy day and just come to this place, there, there's something in you that uh, desires to live a life that counts. Live, live a life that matters. And, and so our lives are, are just kind of shaped by all the, not only the circumstances, but the choices we make. And so we, we think about these things. We ask little kids, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? We, we think about, imagine if you could choose, redo where you would go to school, who you would marry, what career you would pursue, where you would live, what your retirement would look like, what, what hobbies would you pursue, and, and all these things. And, and so we think that if we get that formula right, we'll, we'll end up with a kind of a meaningful life. And so all of our advertising is, is built on that. Like if you make this choice, you buy this product, you'll be, have a meaningful life. And, and uh, there, some of the issues are important, like who you're going to marry and oh, what job. Like these things do are important. And in fact, the Bible speaks to some of these things. But, but the Bible is also going to, and Peter's going to say, uh, above and beyond all of that, there's something that supersedes all of that. So that you could, uh, you could go to the right school, you could get the right job, you could have the right spouse, you could have perfect kids, you could have everything go just right, just like you think would, you should plan it. You could have all of that, the Bible says, and still you could end up wasting your life. And conversely, you could, you could botch all those things. You could marry the wrong person, you could go to the wrong school, do the wrong career, you could do uh, just nothing right in your life. And, and if you get this one thing, if you get this one thing that supersedes all of that, in the end, you will have not wasted your life. Um, about 21 years ago in, in May, May 20th, year 2000, in a field outside of Memphis, Tennessee, there was the fourth annual Passion Conference. This is a conference geared to 18 to 25-year-olds. Uh, it was, this was the first one outside. It's kind of a rainy night before. It was 
think a little bit of Woodstock. There was tents and 40,000 college students there. And uh, Louis Giglio, who runs Passion Ministries, invited a guy, a pastor by the name of John Piper, no one really knew that much about, to come and speak to these college students. Piper's in his 50s at this point. And what he said on that day absolutely shaped and transformed uh, the Christian mind and a generation. If you've ever been impacted at all by uh, works like by Francis Chan or uh, Louis Giglio or Matt Chandler or, or J.D. Greer or um, uh, what's I'm thinking, who's your old pastor? David Platt. Thank you. David Platt, uh, you, you've been affected by this one particular message. In fact, if, if you've come to Redemption Parker and have been affected here, you've been affected uh, by that message because I've been tremendously shaped and formed by this message. And so Piper, this, this guy in his mid-50s at this time, is, is preaching to college students and, and there's, there's wind. And uh, he said at the time, it, he didn't know if he was connecting because it seemed like they were distracted. They were getting up, going to the bathroom. People were having their conversations. And, and Piper just continued to preach and it absolutely captured a generation. Here's how he starts the sermon. It's a 36-minute sermon. I'm only going to read the first two minutes, but listen to how he starts. He says this, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know the few things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. He says, if you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or a high EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You just have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. And this guy can preach. <laughs> I'm just going to read the whole sermon, actually. Now, uh, he goes on. He says, but I know that not everybody in this crowd wants their life to make a difference. There are hundreds of you. You don't care whether you make a lasting difference or something great. You just want people to like you. This was before social media, by the way. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you would just have a good job and a good wife and a couple kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends, a fun retirement and quick and easy death and no hell, if you could have all that, you'd be satisfied even without God. That's a tragedy. And then he went on to tell them, two stories. He told a story of just a few weeks before, uh, a couple missionary women from his church in their 80s were serving in Cameroon among the poorest and the least reached people on the planet, and they were giving their lives to bring the gospel and relief into their lives. And one had been single her whole life, and the other one uh, was a widower. And uh, while all their friends for a couple generations at this point had been, been living in retirement and enjoying all that, they had given their lives to uh, the people of Cameroon. And, and a couple weeks before this, uh, they were driving, their brakes went out, they went off the cliff, and they died. And he asked his people, he said, is that a tragedy? Says, no, that's not a tragedy. That's not a tragedy. That they had given their lives for the thing that matters forever and ever. It's not a tragedy. 
says, I'll, I'll tell you some, another story. And he reads this story from the Reader's Digest about a man named Bob and a, a woman named Penny. And Bob and Penny had taken a, uh, an early retirement and they had moved from uh, the cold Pacific Northwest and they got to go down to move to uh, Punta Gorda, Florida. And it was just this article telling about uh, just what they got to enjoy. And, and they learned how to play the, the card games that retired people play. And they, they played softball and they had a, a 30-foot trawler to go fishing. And, and it says... And the big crescendo was they, they would take walks every day in the warm sun on the beach and they got to collect seashells. And Piper says, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy that you're going to spend the last third of your life just wasting your life like that. What are you going to do? When you wake up one day and you've crossed over from this side of eternity into the next and you stare into the face of King Jesus, what are you going to do? Are you going to lay the seashells down and say, look, Jesus, look at my seashell collection. That's a tragedy. He says, don't waste your life. Don't believe the narrative. Don't throw your life away like that. And this just kind of captured the attention. Man, how are we living our lives? What have we bought into? What is it about the American dream that is so appealing and yet in the end it will leave us empty? Don't waste your life. That's what Peter's getting at in this passage. He's saying you don't have to know a lot of great things. You have to know one great thing. And Peter's going to lead us to that conclusion in in one spot. At the very end, here's, here's what he says. In the second half of the last verse that we read, it says, in order that. So he says, all of this that I've just said is going somewhere in order that. Here's where it's going. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter says, if you get this one thing, if you understand this, For the glory of God and the joy of all people, you will not waste your life. See, see we are, we we live with this tension. We we don't want to waste our lives, and yet um, we know that there are some things that that are worthy of giving our lives and our money and our time and our sacrifice to. We know that. We would all affirm that, and yet just the dailiness of life, uh, we, we we sabotage our own lives in that pursuit. Yeah, I'll get to the, the big stuff later, but, but today I, I've just got to worry about some other, some more pressing issues today, and, and that's a tragedy. And so Peter wants us to avoid living tragic lives. He says, look, you want your life to count forever? You, you want to give yourself away for the glory of God and the joy of all people? Then just know that on that journey, on that path, there are some enemies on your path. There, there are some things that uh, seek to kill, steal, and destroy, take away your joy, and, and lead you to a life that ultimately is meaningless. He says, if you, if you know what they are, also he's going to equip us with two weapons to fight those. So there's two things that, that could uh, distract us and two, two things to fight against that. He begins to unpack it in the first paragraph there. I'll pick it up in verse 3. He says this, uh, that there's an internal and an external pressure to waste our lives. Look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices. So, so you used to do this. Whatever you did in the past, that, that's enough time spent doing, spent doing this. And what is it? The time that it passes suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. 
With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. And so what what Peter is doing, he's writing to these elect exiles, to these resident aliens, citizens of the kingdom who who are in this world but should not be of this world. and, And there's some pressure in their lives both internally and externally. He says he assumes that in their pre-Christian life, they, like most Roman citizens, engaged in these, uh, what he calls, floods of debauchery. And, And there's some pressure there because, honestly, in the flesh, those things are still attractive to them. There's something in them like, oh, that, those, that, that was a good time. Like, there's, there's, a, there's an inner pull to this kind of debauchery and immorality and drunkenness and orgies, all these things. And, and so that's one uh, lion on the road that seeks to devour us. But, but more than that, it's also an external thing. Uh, notice in verse five, 4, says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So there's pressure from the outside, right? Like when you choose to say, no, I'm going to, uh, I, I want to live a holy life and so therefore I'm not going to live like I used to. Well, your, your friends and your neighbors and your family members are going to be like, well, what's wrong with you? Why, why won't you join us? Are you judging us? Because you've pulled out, like implicitly you're judging us. But more than that, remember their lives were not these segregated lives where there's politics and there's religion and there's, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, their personal lives. It was all one big mesh. So you were to worship the emperor and make offerings to the emperor. You were to worship Saturnilius and other Bacchus and, and all these gods. And, and, and the belief was that these gods in, in your worship and your offerings, uh, they, they would, uh, uh, you would appease them and they would provide safety and protection for the families and for the, for the nation. And so built into their worship was also these like uh, all this debauchery and, and there's cult prostitutes and, and, and there's drunken festivals and, and all this is meant to uh, just kind of just be a flood of debauchery. But it was, the idea is like you join us for our protection. If you pull out of this, the, then the gods are not going to give us favor and our enemies are going to destroy us. So you must hate us if you're not willing to join with us. So there's this pressure. Now, probably no one in this room feels that level of pressure, but we all have felt and will feel some of that pressure. There will be an internal draw, like, hey, I, I, I like that. I, I would like to do those things. And there will be an external draw. Hey, come do those things with us. I was thinking uh, the closest to this that I, uh, I've been around is uh, two, two subcategories in the military uh, that have kind of a distinct culture, the the, the special forces and fighter pilots. Special forces and fighter pilots. Am I right? We got an Air Force pilot. That's why he didn't go fighter pilot. But he is an Air Force pilot, so he knows. That there is a, there's a level of expectation and camaraderie that, that is involved in those communities that, that because they're so intense in their training and that you have to be willing to uh, not only fight together but die for, lay down your life for one another, that it doesn't just stop with your training and, and you don't just engage there. It's your whole life. And so you are expected to do life in every way, in every respect with them. And so um, oftentimes guys would come to me there trying to follow the Lord. And they're like, hey, I'm going to Thailand with my guys. And I'll be like, okay, so what's the big deal? It's like, no, you don't understand. When we go, we are all expected to go everywhere. I'm like, okay, what's the big deal? Well, will we first start at the bars and then we go to the house of prostitution. And if I, 
if I try to pull out of that, then they're, they're going to, uh, it, it'll be bad because it'll be seen as like, hey, you're not for us. You, do you want to see us die? Like, what, why, aren't you, why aren't you being a team player? And so there was just this tremendous pressure. And sometimes, sometimes the guys would give in and I would just help lead them to repentance and, and come back. And other times they would stand up for their faith and they were ostracized. There, there's this pressure. Probably none of us face that, but we all face, whether you're in school with your friends or uh, at, at work, Hey, we're going out. Will you join us? And, and it's going it's to get crazy. And we're going to go on a work trip to Vegas. And what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Or can you just kind of rework the books a little bit? That'll be better for all of us. If you just kind of compromise in this area. We, we all face that. And again, it's internal and external. But, but Peter gave us a, a weapon to fight against this. So that we do not waste our lives. Look at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so, that, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Here's what, what Peter is saying. He's, he's pointing us to the gospel. He's, he's saying, focus on Jesus. Look at what Jesus did. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father, but that didn't mean it was an easy life. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was in agony. His flesh was crying out to compromise. His flesh was just saying, you don't have to do this. He knew what was, was ahead of him, not just the physical agony of the cross, but the spiritual agony of, of abandonment for the Father. And, and, and his flesh was crying out, saying, you don't have to do this, but that's not what Jesus did. He persevered. He fought that. He went to the cross. Jesus was willing to suffer and even die as to not dishonor the Father in sin. And what, what, what Peter is saying is, now you, with the Spirit of Christ, because you are a follower of Christ, can have the mind of Christ, like Paul says. You can have the mind of Christ and embrace that same mindset, that, that I'll, I'll be willing to not only just face a little ostracism and, and dem- deny my flesh, I'll be willing even to suffer if it means not sinning. So, so when you get to the, that place in your faith, that, that's actually very good news, that's evidence of grace that, that your faith is genuine. If you're willing to, to, to suffer, if you're willing to suffer loss, either socially or physically or, or even your own life for the sake of just honoring Christ because you do not want to sin, because you don't want to dishonor Him, you know your faith is genuine. genuine. It's what's called an evidence of grace. You know, one of the most dangerous things for, for Christians is, is Christians that have, their Christianity has never cost them anything. Because you just don't know. Is your faith genuine? I think it is. I say I believe. Has it cost you anything? No. I live like everyone else. That's why the Bible is going to say, and next week it's going to say, that, that there, is a, there is a gift in suffering. Like there, there, there is a gift in suffering because it, 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 it shakes things loose. It, it reveals what's actually there. Is your faith genuine or not? And it's an evidence of grace if, if you can persist, if you can arm yourself with the same way of thinking, if you can embrace the mindset of Christ. It's what uh, the Puritans called the expulsive power of a new affection. 
The expulsive, that means to get rid of the expulsive power of a new affection. So, so this just means like when you look at Jesus on the cross, when you see his, his steadfastness, when you see his same mindset, I, I'm not going to sin. I'm going to honor my father. I'm going to even die for that. And, and that stirs your affections for him. Uh, you, your, your affections grow so much so that they're, they're now larger than, than the temptations to give in to the crowd or to the flesh. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. It isn't that you aren't tempted. It's just that you, you, you just have a higher appreciation for who Jesus is. And so you renew your mind to that. It's an evidence of grace. So that's the first thing. The temptation is internal and external. And then we need to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. We'll come back to that in a minute. The second one well, we, gets picked up. And in fact, he hints at it. In verse 5, it says, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's just pointing that there is a day coming where, where God will come and set all accounts right. In verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. He's just telling them of what is true. So the, the temptation here uh, and, and the, the way that we'll waste our lives is to live like this life is all there is. There's the great irony. To, to, so focus on this life and be ignorant that, that we all stand on the razor-thin edge of eternity and just kind of give ourselves to this. So we think, someday I'll think about eternity, but today I, I've got uh, that 10 o'clock meeting I got to figure out what, what's for lunch. I need to check my IRA because I want to think future. Uh, I want to uh, check my social media feeds, see if I got some likes there. Uh, I'm going to plan, get those tickets for vacation. Uh, I got to catch the game on TV tonight. So, so yeah, tomorrow I'll think about the important things. I'm just kind of, I, I got stuff going on tonight. And that happens the next day and the next day and the next day. And Peter says, that's insanity. That's a surefire way to, to waste your life. To just live in this moment. So we all stand on the edge of eternity. And it's all coming faster than any one of us can know. Either by Jesus' return. And Peter says the end of all things is near. And you're like, well, I think he got it wrong. It's 2,000 years. It's not what he means. He means in, in God's salvation history... With the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, only one chapter, one paragraph, one sentence is left to be written. And then Jesus returned. And it might be today. It might be in another 2,000 years. But there is a moment where we're all going to wake up into the face of God. And for the Christian, this is tremendously good news. The, the, a moment is coming when the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, the one who has nail scars in his hands, is going to have a big, broad smile, and he's going to have arms wide open, and we're going to go to him. And then in that moment, all, we're, all we will have wanted to do is live our life for him. None of us, none of us want to come to that moment and say, Jesus, here's my seashells. Isn't it a great collection? Not if you know Jesus. Not if you know how he has loved you. No, you want to say, man, I, I gave it all. I, I put it all on the field. I was all in. Whatever metaphor you need right now, that's what you want to be in that moment. That's all that will matter. I did not waste my life. It, it's good news. It, it, it should fill us with hope. And, and Christian hope is always focused to this day. 
to, to this future day that's coming. It's all forward-focused. It, it changes our perspective. It changes the way we see the world. It changes the way we see the trials and struggles in our life. So, so if I was to tell a story of a man who last night had to drive downtown in his old clunker of a car, and it was snowing, and it was icy, and, and he was just trying to nurse it around, and, and he hits something, gets a flat tire, and, and the engine stops, and he's still got like three or four miles to go, and, and, and it's just broken down on the side of the road. How do you think he would feel in that moment? How, how would you feel in that moment? Oh, man, I got, I got four miles to go. Well, this man, he gets out of his car, slams the door, and he is ecstatic. It's like, it does not even matter. How? Why? Well, because he just got word that his uber-wealthy uncle who had passed away had left him an amazing inheritance. And he was on his way down to the lawyer's office to get it. So he slams his door. He's like, I don't ever have to see you again. And he walks the three, four, five miles back into the town. And he's got a smile on his face. And it's snowing. And, and cars are driving up. And they're splashing. And he's like, I don't care. I don't care. I've got an inheritance coming. This is going to be amazing. That's what, what Peter's getting at. When, when you see this and, and you live with that kind of expectation and hope, it doesn't matter what life could throw at you. You're like, I've got an inheritance coming. That's where he's getting at. But we live so, so much of our lives like that doesn't matter. We live like that's not going to happen. And consequently, we waste our lives. We give it away. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his great work, Mere Christianity. He said, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is, If you read history, you will find the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. That's what Peter's saying. For the glory of God and the joy of all people, you know that you are an eternal being standing on the edge of eternity and you want to make your life count. He says, if you're going to do that, then... Then, then you should, if, you, if you're going to live in an eternal perspective, you, you're going to live for eternal things. And the only things that are eternal from this life to the next are the eternal God and the eternal people of God. So he says, give yourself to God, give yourself to God's people, and you will not waste your life. Look what he says. The end of all things that are at hand, therefore, so, so in light of this truth, in light of this reality, therefore, he gives us four things to do. Be self-controlled. Self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He's saying be in your right mind. Which is kind of funny because when you, when you see the cartoons or the movies, who, who are the people with the signs, the end is near? They're crazy. Like, those, those guys are out of their mind, right? And what Peter is saying is actually... Well, when, you, when you understand that you're not holding up signs, you're not, you're not that, but you are, you are in your right mind. 
So, so in the Gospels, when, when Jesus heals the demoniac who was out of his mind, and they, the, all the crowd comes in, and he's, he's in his right, it says he's literally in his right mind, and he's eating and he's talking. This is the same word. He's saying, be sober-minded. Be in your right mind. The end is near. Therefore, be in your right mind so that you can give yourself to communion with God in prayer. In prayer. So that's the first thing. So be sober-minded so you can pray. Verse 8. Above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. So you as the church earnestly that's proactive that's that's how can i show express and sacrificially love one another in my church my gospel community in my core group so so love earnestly number verse nine show hospitality to one another without grumbling that's that's i'm going to open up my life and my home and, and my resources to the building up and the edification of god's eternal family and then verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God's, as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks of oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So, so the Bible says, and Paul will say this uh, on, on repeat, if you're a, a believer in Christ this morning, it says two things. You have the Spirit of God. You have the, the life, the Spirit of Christ living in you. And, and in that, He has gifted you specifically with at least one, maybe multiple ways that you are gifted. And those gifts are not for your enjoyment, but for our enjoyment. So, so we always want to come back to this. The Christian life is not a spectator sport. You are gifted for the purpose of building up and and edifying the Bible. So so the question we should be asking is, what am I gifted at? Do you know what it is? How do you develop that and how do you unleash that? So so we say at Redemption Park, we're never going to hire anyone to do the ministry. We're only going to hire people that will help lay down the tracks for you to do the ministry you're called to. That's biblical Christianity. And so our aim is to figure out how do we get you on that on-ramp so that you don't waste your life. So, so we arm ourselves with the mindset of Christ and we think in light of eternity and we live in love for that, for the glory of God and the joy of all people in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So how will you leverage your life to make it count forever? Have you armed yourself with the mindset of Christ? That doesn't just mean knowing the gospel. It, it even doesn't just mean believing the gospel. Notice there's, a, there's something else going on. There's an arming yourself to engage the gospel in your life. So, so if you have some sort of weapon at, at your home to, to protect yourself, whatever, a gun or knife, whatever it is, you can say, no, no, I've got it. It's up in the attic. But I've got it. I've got the weapon. That's not going to be sufficient in the moment that you need it. You haven't armed yourself with the weapon to, to beat the enemy. So this is what Jesus, this is what Peter's saying. It's not enough just to know the gospel. You have to uh, be soaking in the gospel. You have to rehearse the gospel. You have to remind each other what's ultimately true so that you're like, yes, we will fight this battle. We will win. We will look at Christ on the cross and he would not sin at all costs. He would suffer before that. And I want the same thing. That's arming yourself. Secondly, how might you live differently if you were to stare down eternity today? If you were truly to live like, hey, I'm an eternal being and a day is coming where I'll stand in, in, the, in front of Jesus 
in that day, all that's going to matter is, man, did I leverage my life for his glory and the joy of all people? It's all that matters 10 years from now, but especially it'll all matter probably for everyone in this room 100 years from now. 100 years from now, this life will be passed and we will stand before the judge and we'll say, did I leverage my life or not? A thousand years from now, that's all that will matter. A million years from now, that's all that will matter. So it's insanity to not live like that re- in, in light of that reality. So imagine if together we were a people so radically committed to loving and honoring Christ that we would rather suffer in this world than sin against our God. Imagine, imagine that kind of testimony that we would have in Parker. Imagine if we were a church where everyone knew their spiritual gift, developed that gift, and and together we developed it, and used that gift to build up God's eternal church. Imagine what God would do in this church, and in this city, and in this nation, and among the nations if we leveraged our lives and our gifts for His glory. Yes, Lord, make it so. Let's pray. Father, we praise You and thank You that You have given us a living hope. Thank you for the reminder that our lives are meant to be lived for your glory and for the joy of all people. Father, I pray that as we go out this morning and go into the world, Lord, you would just remind us this week of the truth of of your word, the truth of arming ourselves with the same mindset of Christ and the truth of living in light of eternity. Lord, we uh, can't do that on our own. We will be tempted this week. We will, we will be caught up in the tyranny of the urgent. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you just remind us of this word this week and make us more into the image of your Son. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.